Our scripture lesson this morning is drawn from the last couple verses of 1 Peter, chapter 5, beginning at verse 8 and extending to the end of the chapter. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you and all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found, was blind, but now I see. The hymns and psalms really are our creeds. Um, you don't have the Savoy Declaration memorized. I don't have it memorized. But we memorize what we sing, and it dwells deep in our hearts, and if you go through the repertoire of what we sing, you will notice that grace is very, very central to what we confess. As Protestants, grace is a central aspect of the covenant. Grace uh, really separates Christianity from all the world religions. Grace is the focus of our faith. We look back upon God's act of grace in Jesus Christ. We depend upon his grace there in the past. Our hope looks forward to the grace we have seen in God and the promises he has made. We assume our gracious God will keep his promises, and he will. Even our very love is grounded on grace. Our Lord Jesus Christ said very clearly, whoever is forgiven little loves little, but whoever is forgiven much loves much. Grace is the very heart of the gospel. Its clinical definition, which is perfectly true, is unmerited favor. That's a little cold when you say it like that. It's true, but what does that mean? Well, it means that God loves you 
when he doesn't really have any particular logical reason to do so. God graciously loves you. He looks upon you. He has seen your very best, and even in spite of that, God loves you. He has sent Jesus Christ because of the value he wills to place upon you, not that you have any intrinsic value at all. Uh, Grace has been called God's little quirk. He chooses to love. He chooses to care. He chooses to redeem. As Protestants, there is nothing more dear to us than grace. As the Apostle ends his letter, and we have been walking through 1 Peter now for months and months, in verse 12, the Apostle effectively finishes with the concept of grace. We read, by Sylvanus, a true, loyal, consistent, incorruptible brother, as I consider him, I have written briefly to you to counsel and urge and stimulate you to the and declare to you that this is the true account of the grace, the undeserved favor of God. Be steadfast and persevere in it. Reading the Amplified for a purpose. Uh, but his closing, his closing statements are grace. He reminds us of grace. He says that everything he has written about is grace. Grace is central, and it is the last significant theological idea he leaves us with. But he says this is the grace of God in which you stand, in which you should walk. When he uses the term this, what is this? Because the term this seems kind of particular. It means that there is a context and a scope. So what are, what is the scope that he's talking about? Where is this true grace? Well, in context, it seems like he's referring to the whole book. The entire book is about grace. Uh, But he's says he is doing something that seems very odd if the entire book is about grace. He says that he is uh, exhorting us to use the New King James. He is testifying to us that this is the grace of God. You would think the alienated heart would grab at grace and would not need a whole lot of exhortation. You would think that the mind of a redeemed believer would recognize grace and would hardly need the apostle to, quote, testify to it. It is so central to who we are in Jesus Christ. It is so central to the very covenant of God in Christ. Why would the apostle need to exhort and testify concerning it? And looking at it in the Amplified, as I just read, the term exhortation is rather powerful. The Amplified has to amplify it using these terms. I counsel you that this is the grace of God. I urge you. I stimulate you. Uh, These are kind of powerful words. Why would any of that be necessary? Don't we love grace? 
Don't we turn to grace in our need? Isn't grace the very, very ambrosia of God that feeds our souls? Why would the apostle have to exhort me to walk in grace? Why would he have to testify to me what grace is? Don't I know it? Well, maybe not. Maybe not in its fullness. As the epistle comes to a close, the apostle takes us through three fairly central truths, and then at the end of that he says, now this is the grace of God. What are those central truths that he walked us through? Well, the first one is, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. That doesn't sound a lot like grace. That sounds like a threat. We are told in Scripture that the devil is very real, that he is present, that he has come forth from his city to do battle with us. We must be sober and vigilant because he will walk arms with us, and he means business. He is looking to devour people. He must be resisted. All the saints in the world, wherever they may be, in whatever church they may be, they are all involved in conflict with Satan. They are all enduring sufferings. They are all experiencing sufferings. Or, as the NASB points out, they are accomplishing sufferings. There is a war going on, and you are in it. And then Peter says, this is the grace of God that you should stand in. The second thing he emphasizes is perhaps a little bit more expected. Uh, Once this struggle he has talked about comes to a resolution, Peter assures us that we will be comforted, established, healed, Uh, If you read the King James or you read, say, the New American Standard Bible, it's slightly different here, but not really. The New King James says, But may the God of all grace, so there's our word again, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. So it reads like a blessing. The apostle is praying a very kind of special prayer over us. You're involved in struggle with the devil, but may God's true grace really shine upon you, and if it does, then you will be perfected, you will be established, you will be strengthened, you will be settled, all these things you would need after a conflict. In the the NASB tradition, there was a scribe to my mind, it's obvious, who wanted you to know that if an apostle pronounces a blessing over you, you're going to have what he says. It reads there, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, and strengthen and establish you. Either way, it is an assurance, though, because the apostle has blessed us with this, with a final kind of blessing. 
you know what's going to happen. God is going to do this. The second point we tend to think about when we think about grace. Why is grace so comforting? Well, it's because God establishes, settles, saves. Uh, That's what we expect the fruit of God's grace to be, and we're not wrong. The third point, again, is not as surprising as the first. The last thing before telling us this is the grace of God is that he focuses on a blessing that Christ's coming reign will be. He says, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So this is the grace of God. Jesus Christ is going to reign over everything, everywhere. We have this promise. It is an assured promise. We are going to be established We're going to be settled. We're going to be made firm. But before we get to any of that, the devil is wandering around seeking whom he can devour. You have to resist him. You're going to need strengthening because you're going to be weakened in the fight. You're going to need to be settled because you're going to be shaking from the conflict. You need to be established because this is going to be a heavy fight. This is the grace of God, says Peter, that you stand in. It's the end of the book, but it mirrors the beginning of the book, at least mostly. The major context of this is the grace of God is the whole book, but consider how Peter began. He begins with the second point, which makes sense considering what he's wanting to do. As the epistle began, Peter said this to us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So we begin with what we are familiar with of grace. The Lord God has laid hold of us in Jesus Christ. He has begotten us again. There is that phrase that is so tender to evangelicals. We are reborn. We've been reborn by the power of God. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and we are in union with him. So his life is our life. There is an inheritance waiting for us in heaven. We are being protected for that inheritance. We are surely protected. This is the same thing as Peter's blessing at the end. The God of all grace will strengthen, take hold of you, uh, establish you. Jesus Christ will reign. Same stuff. But it isn't very long, in fact it's the very next verse, again in the first chapter, where we move into the second point. Peter says, in this you, the first point, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be. So Peter says, what I'm about to say may be required. God wills it, God requires it. It is important. It is significant. 
In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So after talking about the fruit of grace, which we are familiar with, Peter immediately leaps into, now, uh, you're kind of like ore that's going to be put in a flame. There's a crucible with your name on it, and you are going to be like silver or gold. And fire is going to melt you. This may be required. It may be God's will. This is going to be a fairly violent process, but it may be, in fact, required. Now, as we have moved through the epistle, we have seen the concept of trials and difficulties used in a general way, a place or two, but mostly the reference has been to other human beings who are outside of the light and outside of the kingdom are going to rough you up. Things like chapter 4, verse 3 through 4. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries, in regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. So, uh, what are these fiery trials are going to test us? Well, it comes from the hands of other men, they are going to look at us and say, okay, you don't fit here, you don't belong here, we don't really understand your way of life, but we don't like it. Uh, all this kingdom, holiness, goodness, life-giving life, we don't like that. So we're going to speak evil of you. And it's not just those who are outside of religion. Now, it's those outside the light, but not all those outside religion it will even include religious people who can be described as builders of the kingdom. In chapter 2, Peter said this, Therefore it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. Or you could translate that predestined because that's the exact same word. They have been predestined to the stumbling, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So Peter, when he thinks about the trials we may suffer, doesn't just think about the Gentiles who have walked in a tradition outside of God for eons. 
But he thinks about people who have been involved in true religion, the builders of the temple. They don't actually believe, some of them. They get to the capstone of the temple, which is Jesus Christ, and they don't want the stone. And they reject him, and they will reject us, these outwardly religious people. They were involved in religion that God had revealed. They were involved in the right forms of religion, nothing particularly wrong with their forms. But they were disobedient to the word. They didn't really believe. When they got to what the temple was really all about, they didn't want that. And they will be responsible for our difficulties as well. Up until this point, Peter has basically reserved the crucible for what other men will do to us. But now as the epistle comes to a close, we are shown who is behind their behavior. And it's not them. I mean, they're doing what's natural to them. But they're being directed. They're being directed by the devil. The devil is looking for someone to devour. Uh, We've been told about his actions up to this moment. He has been using human hands and human mouths, but... It's him. He's at work. And in this, Peter agrees perfectly with his colleague Paul. When Paul contemplates the difficulties we face and the conflict we endure, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 12, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't? No, we don't. Flesh and blood is used by the devil. Flesh and blood is the weapons in his hands, which might make you feel rather personal about it. But ultimately, it is the devil. The Apostle Paul says the devil is behind this. You are going to stand against the devil, putting on the the armor of God, Uh, that you may be able to stand against the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So right as we come in to this epistle, which Peter will define as this in total is the grace of God, we are brought to the concept of testing, difficulties, conflict. But It's important to note that Peter doesn't just say these things will happen. He says your faith will be tested in the crucible. And when metal workers test metal, they're really doing two things. And the apostle draws both of them into his imagery. The first one is what you think about when you think about testing. It reveals a quality. Now, in the case of our heavenly metal worker, God doesn't actually need to test our metal because he knows exactly what it is. But somebody needs to know the quality of it. It's actually us who are in the, the furnace. You will not actually know who you are in Christ. You will not know if what you say with your mouth is true until you are in the crucible of conflict. When the trials of this life, which the devil is behind, are attacking you, when it really does seem like the sea is so 
ragged that your ship will go down, when the night seems so dark, that's when you'll find out who you are. God doesn't need to know, but you do. But again, returning to the, the metal worker, it's not just testing the metal, it's purifying the metal. And Peter has brought that image in too. You can't purify your silver from dross without the crucible. You can't refine your gold to its perfection without the crucible. This violent conflict of the elements is required for purity. It is required to make this what the metal worker wants it to be. And so after telling us we have all this coming to us, and then telling us that we will be in the crucible, we are promised that God will not only show us who we are, thanks be to God we don't stop there, because if we actually see who we are and that's it, that's really depressing. But rather, God will purify, refine, make more valuable in his eyes who we are, because the devil prowls about, the devil is like a roaring lion seeking to make him devour. Through that very process where the devil takes hold of men to do his will, God will smelt us, specifically our faith. It will be improved. And then um, after that, we will have the reign of Christ, our third point. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7 to 9. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom you have not seen, you love, though now you do not see him, and that is put in context of his revelation where you will, Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So as Peter brought us in, he basically went through these three points. And as we go out, he brings us through these three points because he is summarizing. And he tells us that all of this is the grace of God. It is not just the promises. It is not just the assured blessings. It is not just the fact that we are on the right side of history and Jesus Christ will reign over all of eternity someday. It is even the roaring of the devil, who, for his part, is seeking someone to devour. It is the tribulations of this life. It is the enemy who hates you. It is the detractor who tries to destroy. This is as much the grace of God as anything else. The furnace is helpful. The crucible builds up. Although you don't experience that at that time, that is happening. The silver is being purified. The gold is being refined. This is the grace of God. And this in itself is an honor, an actual honor. 
we might think that Peter is talking of something which we would cower from and say, Lord, I really don't want this aspect of grace. I mean, you know, grace is great, and I love it, but maybe we can just have the, the other two points. No, all of this is grace. And when the Apostle Paul thinks about this aspect of grace, when he writes to the Philippians, he says, for to you it has been granted. God's giving you something, it's a blessing. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him. So that's granted. The Bible says God grants you to believe. It's a gift from God. And that's a great honor, right? I mean, nobody here would argue that possessing God-given faith is an honor from God. Well, Paul says it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. It is a gift. A gift of God. Does the world hate you? It hated him before it ever met you. The student cannot be greater than the teacher. If they have hated the teacher, they will hate the student. Does the devil hate you? Does he attack you? Converted, did you find out that those who said, after you believe in Jesus Christ, everything will be puppies and kittens and you will have no struggles, were effectively lying, and that when you came to Christ, you had greater struggles, for you found the battle line right down the middle of your soul, this is actually the grace of God. He has chosen of his own good pleasure, for whatever reason of his, to take hold of you and to say, I will sovereignly make up my army to do my will, and it will include you. As I said, he knew all about you. He knew your very best. And he saw it for what it was. And objectively, it was worthless. But he looked at you and said, I will take this person... I will redeem them. I will place them in the battle on my side. I will put them under the flag of the cross. They will wear the armor of heaven. They will assault the devil's gates. I will give them this honor. It is a glory to them. And it is a part of grace. God is being gracious to you. And it has to be a part of grace in a world where the battle is going on. If the world were at peace, spiritually speaking, perhaps this would not be part of grace, but unfortunately, if you think about it from that point of view, uh, we have to take a position. And I don't mean an opinion, I mean we actually geographically have to be somewhere. We stand in this world, the forces are at war, which line are you going to stand in? If you stand in the world's line, you still have the spirit of the power of the prince of the air 
uh, utilizing you. You're spirit-filled. Every human being is spirit-filled. You're filled with the devil, and you're being used for his purposes. If you're positionally in his line, that's what's going on. But if God picks you up and brings you to life, and he puts you down in this world, where will he put you down except in the other line? There is nowhere else to be. There is no neutrality. There is no place where this is oli-oli-oxen-free. There is no conflict here. The war between good and evil is happening everywhere. And if you're going to continue to exist in the world, you get put down in God's line. And that means the world, the flesh, and the devil hate you. That's it. That's the two options. And so if God is going to be gracious to you, the world, the flesh, and the devil will hate you. You will someday be the church triumphant, and quicker than you might imagine. I have a feeling that when this life comes to its end and we look back from the vantage point of glory, we shall say, I can't believe that ended so fast. But for now, you are the church militant, and it is the very grace of God that you have been honored to wear that shield, to wield that sword, to place that helmet upon your head, to have those feet shod <coughs> with the gospel of peace. This is the grace of God. If you would embrace the promises, if you would embrace the glory, if you would embrace everything we think about grace as, you must also embrace the call. You must embrace the smell of smoke. You must embrace the struggle. <coughs> For even in it, God is being gracious to you. He is refining you as silver. He is purifying you as gold. This is inherently graceful just as much as the fact that Jesus Christ paid his blood for you. It is all of grace. It is all the will of God. But make no mistake, the flesh is not likely of itself to see this as grace. If you, if you search the word, you will find it is graceful. But if you are left to your eyes of flesh, if you are left to your human senses, uh, you might wonder, is this the grace of God? Is God loving me because I am struggling beyond my measure? Is God loving me because I am dying of cancer? Is God loving me because the world hates me? Is God really loving me in this? The Apostle Peter grabs hold of us by the lapel and says, I have something to exhort you about. I have something to counsel you about. I have something that I want to make you see, and it's very hard to see. I have to testify about something that you're not going to initially recognize. All of this is the grace of God. It was what God predestined from the foundation of the world you would walk in. None of your suffering and difficulty is surprising to God. And there is not one brother or sister in Jesus Christ anywhere in the world that is not experiencing it. But they are rather accomplishing it. You know, I... I I, I believe that the text of God's scripture has been preserved for us in the majority of manuscripts. I, I preach out the New King James Version. But occasionally, the NASB really gets to the heart of what's being said. 
the NASB doesn't say the saints in the world are experiencing this battle. It says they are <coughs> accomplishing it. I mean, that's what soldiers do, right? I mean, they don't just go into the struggle and say, what I really want to do here is hurt. They go in and say, my king has sent me on a mission. At the end of this campaign, we will place our flag on that hill there and it will fly. And that is the very kind of language that Peter is using. All the saints in the world are accomplishing the suffering. The devil has come out to devour them. They are wielding their faith. They are fighting the devil. He must be resisted. But they are accomplishing their sufferings. And the end of the day will see them victorious. That is the eye of hope. And hope is built on grace. We trust that our God is gracious, that he will give us the victory. We trust that the reign of Christ will come, and much sooner than the world expects, and we will not be disappointed. But occasionally, we need someone to grab us by the lapels and say, this is the grace of God. It really is. Thanks be to God.